Good evening. Let me pray, ask God to help us, strengthen us, and then we'll jump in. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We praise you, O God, for your incomparable holiness. You are thrice holy, worthy of our attention, affection, awe, reverence. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at these topics tonight, that they would, they would point us to your glory and that we would delight in you. Help us, O oh God, to honor you in the way that we think, feel, and act, even as we look at this study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so tonight we're going to be looking at a lot of bad news. Uh, but it, hopefully we'll walk away encouraged still. Uh, we're, we're really talking about in this chapter or this phase of our study of the topics in the Bible, we're looking at the fall of man, we're looking at sin, we're looking at the punishment thereof, and namely, uh, what we're looking at tonight is what the impact of the fall had on us, and it really, it's a lot of bad news, but why do you think that looking at a lot of bad news tonight can still make us walk away feeling encouraged and grateful? Yeah, Christian. Really, only scripture, only our scripture speaks about that. Yeah, okay. The other scriptures, or so-called old scriptures, don't really explain it. All right, so Christian says in the scriptures are the ones who really talk about the bad news. Uh, some don't even talk about bad news at all. Ours talk about the bad news, but also in a way that is actually reality, right? God explaining to us how things are. I saw a hand up over in this area. No? Joe's? Jose? Bad habit. Yeah, God's sovereign over it, even the bad stuff. Good. Anything else? Yes, Leslie. Because in the end, it all ends well. Right, yeah. In the end, it, it all ends well. That's a very good point. Um, we've heard it rightly said before that in order for you to really appreciate the good news, you have to understand the bad news. So if you were going around on the Titanic... Uh, w and saying, hey, there are still plenty of lifeboats left. But they didn't know the ship was sinking. They'd be like, oh, great, good to know. But if they were aware that the Titanic had struck an iceberg and that they needed to get off of the ship, there would be good news that there were still plenty of lifeboats available. Does that make sense? So the more that we, the more that we understand the bad news, the more that we realize just how amazing the good news is. And th there is a... a well, how would you put this? A correlation between just how wicked you realize that you are or were, and in some sense still are, and how amazing God's grace is. If you think, yeah, I sinned a couple times and God forgave me, then you'll have a little bit of appreciation. But if you recognize that like, I still sin tens of thousands of times a day, that may be an exaggeration, that may be not. I haven't thought about the calculations in my head. But then you recognize, wow, God's grace is really amazing. So as we focus on our state before God gave his only son for us, then we will all the more appreciate just how incredible his mercy is. So we're going to take a look at three different topics on this note in your outline. And if you need an outline, Nelly, are you, sit, are you uh, sitting next to them or did you move them, Nelly? Los Mueven? Oh, okay. Yeah, so they're in front of Nelly if you need an outline there. And we're going to take a look at this. First of all, let's read the whole paragraph at the top there. We're reading from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, just as, a, as we always do, a disclaimer. 
This document from the 1600s is not authoritative like the Bible is, but it provides us a helpful way to go through certain subjects of the Bible uh, in a way that we think is, is faithfully represented. And so here's what the quote says, and we'll examine it. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby that death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So let's break this down. The first concept that we see in this paragraph, and we'll see from the scripture, is that when Adam and Eve fell, we fell with them. When Adam and Eve fell, we fell with them. Take a look at that first part of the quote under number one. Our first parents, by this sin, talking about the sin that uh, Pastor Corey covered last week, just by way of review, what was that sin that this is referring to? What was the sin of Adam and Eve? Disobeying God, right? Not Amen. So, you know, it's not merely that they ate a fruit that they shouldn't have. That's sometimes what they, Christians are mocked for. God did all that because they ate some fruit. As a matter of fact, it, there was a panel of preachers and um, somebody had asked them, why was the punishment so severe for this crime? And the late R.C. Sproul kind of laid out like they they rebelled against the cosmic creator of the universe who did nothing good to them and you ask why is the punishment so severe what's wrong with you people <laughs> you know it's a very famous answer that he gave but i mean the reality is it was disobedience it was rebellion against a holy god who had done nothing but good to them so they ate of the fruit i ate the fruit of the tree that uh of the knowledge of good and evil, which they shouldn't have because they were forbidden from doing so. And by that sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. Now, by the way, let's deal with the first few words real quick. Our first parents. Um, if, if you're paying very close attention, you may look at that and you may tilt your head a little bit and, and wonder, our first parents, like, both of them, right? Like, why, why should that kind of perk your ears up a little bit that it's saying that by the sin of our first parents, we fell? Why should that perk your ears a little bit? Emmy? Um, because in the Bible, like Romans chapter 5, when it talks about being an Adam or in Christ, it doesn't say Adam and Eve. Right. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's dead on. It's, Romans 5 says that it's by one man's sin not by a man and a woman's sin. It was by one man's sin that we were plunged into this fall. So it's helpful for us to understand that the authors of the confession are not, they're not addressing that per se. What they're actually answering is this false idea that was around, that was coming from Socinianism, which basically taught a bunch of heresies. But one of the heresies that they taught was that uh, there's no such thing as original sin. So they deny the reality uh, that we inherit a sinful nature from Adam and Eve. Okay, so that's really what they're answering here. Adam and Eve are our first parents. We are descended from them, and we have inherited from them a sinful nature. That's, what they're, that's why they're talking about our first parents, because it's passed down from being their descendants. So by this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We, we learned earlier as we were looking at creation that all of creation was good. 
uh, male and female, he created them, and they were very good. They, they had no defilement. They had no sin. They were able to obey God's commandments. They were also able to choose not to obey God's commandments, but they had an original righteousness, a right standing with God. They also had a, a communion with God. What was their relationship with God like before the fall? Perfect. It was perfect. It's describing with him talking to them, even walking in the garden with them, right? So they lost that. They fell from that. And then the key that we're looking at here is the next phrase, and we in them, whereby death came upon all. In other words, because we are from them, we also fell with them. We're going to look at whether that's true or not. Um, <laughs> Christian says it's true. Well, let's look. Romans 3, verse 23. Romans 3, 23. So the argument that Paul is, is making here, essentially, in Romans 1 up to this point, is that every single person in the world, whether they're Jew or Gentile, they need salvation. They're, they're sinners, and they need Jesus Christ. So that's the argument that he's making up in this section. And in Romans 3.23, well, let's read 22 up to 23. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Read, there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23, all have sinned. Every single person in history, including you and me, and excluding Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, every single human being in history has sinned against God. And so immediately that answers this whole idea that there's no such thing as original sin. Because if you don't have a sinful nature, then what is possible, potentially? Being perfect. Being perfect. If you don't have a sinful nature, it's possible, theoretically, that someone could not sin their whole life um, apart from Christ, right? And so it's saying, no, right here it says, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. The idea of falling short of the glory of God is falling short of his glorious, perfect, and holy standard, which actually brings up an interesting question. What do you think about this? Why does it not say fall short of the standard of God? Why does Paul choose to say that they've fallen short of the glory of God? Yeah, God is perfect. Yeah, God's perfect. We can't attain that. Uh, certainly, certainly. Do you think that Adam and I'll just I'll assert this: Adam and Eve could have not fallen short of the glory of God if they did if they didn't eat from the tree. So I think. Yeah. If they didn't disobey, then they wouldn't have fallen short. Right. That's right. You got it. So I think that's what, what's being ex expressed here is that all of God's commandments are from his glory. They're not separate from him. They're not arbitrary. He didn't just decide one day, this is right and this is wrong. Everything that is right and wrong is a reflection of who he is. And humans were supposed to be image, his image bearers. They were to display his glory in a way that was special from the rest of creation. And, and every human being has fallen short of that. The only person, the only type of person who can not fall short of the glory of God is the one who obeys his commandments perfectly, right? 
And so that's why Jesus is the, is the, um, the imprint of God's divine nature. From birth, that's right. From birth, they would have to follow. That's right. From birth, from birth. Yeah, you got it. And it's not possible for anyone except the God-man himself. So all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed to live up to the standard of who he is. And so how does this point to this idea that when Adam and Eve fell, we fell with them? It doesn't explicitly say that. We're going to see that in the next section a little more clearly. But certainly, if everyone, everyone has sinned, then it's evidence of what? If every single person has sinned, then what is that evidence of? That we do have some sort of inherited sinful nature. That there's no one, there's no one neutral. No one is born neutral. And that's the idea here. Now, we look at, yeah. yeah. It explains evil also. Yeah, t- tell me more about his. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Christian says it also explains evil because evil doesn't come from God. God does not sin. He does not tempt anyone to sin. But evil comes from fallen creatures like us. So we see, again, when Adam and Eve fell, we fell with them. By the way, the third point is where we're going to be spending most of our time. So uh, the first point is that when Adam and Eve fell, we fell with them. And secondly, all humanity became dead in sin. All humanity became dead in sin. That phrase right there is pretty much on the nose. All becoming dead in sin. Death came upon all. All becoming dead in sin. We'll stay in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12. And here, Paul is explaining how it is that we have life in Jesus Christ. And the way that he's doing that is by expressing how we had death in Adam. In Romans 5, verse 12, he says... Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, dot, dot, dot. We'll just focus on this one verse. So we see, first of all, that sin came into the world. Was there, was there sin before Adam fell? No. There's no sin, at least not with humanity. We probably say de- demons transgressed, right? Uh, but when it came to humanity, we came to the earth that God created, there was no sin. Sin came into the world through one man, which goes back to what we were saying. It was through Adam that sin came into the world. And then in addition to sin coming into the world, we also see that death through sin came into the world. What does that mean, that death came into the world through sin? It's the culmination of sin? Talk more about that, brother. Yeah, so the, the end of sin, I guess, is that the telos, the result of sin is death. And you were saying the wages of sin is death. And that's why the final enemy, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is death. The final enemy to be destroyed is death. So sin and death are, are inseparable from each other. As a matter of fact, what was the punishment for eating the fruit? Yeah, you shall surely die. And in that moment, Adam and Eve started to, started to die physically. 
for the rest of their lives, they started to die. And then they also spiritually died. Um, That's why Ephesians says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So um, that is why when sin came into the world, death also spread to, uh, death also came into the world through sin. Um, And by the way, this, this is just as a side note. This idea precludes the idea of theistic evolution. Do, do we know what we're talking about theistic evolution? What do I mean? What do I mean by that? It's the belief that evolution is the process which got you. Right. So they're saying that yes, what they're observing and what scientists are saying about evolution is true, and that's simply what God used to bring about all of humanity, and um, it's and it's impossible. Why? The second law of thermodynamics, okay. Entropy, law of entropy, everything tends to disorder my great theorem proves that. Okay, all right, right on. Yep. Yeah, I think because evolution essentially means death. Mm-hmm. Because generations must continue for adaptation as they do. But if death only came through Adam, then mm-hmm. like you said, it destroys that. Thing. That's right. We, we can't have a system where death happened before the fall. It was the fall that brought death into the world. It was sin, it was through sin that death entered the world. So with evolution, the process is the survival of the fittest. So it's, it's coming from death, 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 death. That would be impossible, biblically speaking, and then scientifically speaking, the second law of thermodynamics. If you have questions, ask Christian on that one. Yeah, yes sir. That's a great point. So part of the argument that's being made here that Cedric's pointing out is that, is that we were all in the first Adam and therefore we needed Christ as our second Adam to save us. But if you have theistic evolution where you have multiple families and lines, who is the one that we're all descended from? You know, that wouldn't, we wouldn't be in any kind of line of humanity. Yes? Yes. And in the words of President Trump, wrong. (laughs) All right. Where were we? All humanity became dead in sin. Um, So death came through sin. And then as a result of death coming through sin, death spread to all men. So not only did Adam and Eve die physically in the long run and spiritually, but all of humanity after them also were born starting to die. Now it's kind of weird to think about and morbid, but that's the reality is that all of us are dying. Like we are in the process of degrading unto death. And that was part of the curse. We're also born spiritually dead, just as they were spiritually dead as well. And interestingly, it says in verse 12, the reason for death spreading to all men is because all sinned. Now there's a couple of ways to think about that idea. 
And the first one is that uh, it's talking about our personal sin. I sin, you sin, and that's why death spread to all of us. But I think that's problematic because what that would imply is we didn't die spiritually until our first sin. But that's not, that's not, and then that would also imply that we didn't start physically dying until our first sin either. But that's not scientifically true. It's not biblically true. So instead, I think what's being said here is that all sinned in Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned with him because he was our representative. He was our federal covenant head. He represented all of us. Now, that may trouble you. You may say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Why should I get punished for a sin that I didn't even commit? What are your thoughts on that? So you're saying that you've never sinned? No, I'm saying we're guilty of, we sinned in Adam. No, we're guilty of our own sins. That's true. Yes, we are guilty of our own sins. Yeah. And again, it's not possible for us to be perfect. Right, it's yeah. From, from conception, it's not possible for us to be perfect. But even before we sinned, we were dead. Yeah. We were punished for Adam's sin. Yeah. Yeah, if you're saying we have this understanding of corporate responsibility. If the USA was at war, we're like, well, I wasn't at war. I was at home, right? But you understand we are a collective, and we're collectively responsible in that way. I saw a hand up over here. Wally. Right. I mean, that's a good point. Like you're asking that question is doubting in, 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 in that question, God's justice. So if we're asking, is it God, is it just for God to do blank? The answer is yes, because he is just like, if you're going to say he's not just, you have to ask by what standard are you saying that he is the standard of justice. Uh, but also if you don't like the idea that you are cursed because of Adam's sin, then you also shouldn't like the idea that you're blessed because of Christ's obedience. Does that make sense? Like the re if you are saved, if you believe in Jesus Christ and therefore are forgiven of your sins, it's because of what Jesus did, not because of anything you did. So it's, it's the opposite of what Adam did. Because of what Adam did, we were born cursed. Because of what Jesus did, we were born again blessed. Is that making sense to you? So... You, you can't just like one and not take the other because it's the same idea. Um, we also see corporate responsibility in when David sinned, God punished Israel because he is their representative, right? He chose to do that and God is just in doing so. But there is also, to Christian's point, there's personal responsibility as well. Um, we sin as quickly as we possibly can, right? So we were just talking about how Elora's in the hospital and She's standing at her crib and she drops something over the crib. 
and mom, Megan, says, don't put stuff over the crib. And something changed in Alora's expression. She got this mischievous glint in her eye. We both saw it. And she reached for something else and watched us. And she dropped it out there. Now, we're on camera, so we're not going to give any buck buck at the hospital, okay? <laughs> not trying to involve CPS. <laughs> but but it, was, it, was, it was very interesting for both of us to see that. And she's only 16 months old. And neither of us taught her to do that. We didn't say, hey, when we tell you to do something, question it, right? <laughs> we, we say obey. You have to obey. If you don't obey us, then you're disobeying God. And um, now you might say that, well, you're, Ed, you're reading too much into her facial expression, but I think all parents in here would acknowledge that it's not going to be much longer from here, that it's going to be much clearer that there is rebellion in their heart. And it's not taught. It's something that you're realizing that they came with. They came out of the womb with that, right? It's standard equipment. It's standard equipment. So that even though we did sin in Adam, there is a real sense that we all, will, we all sin. We, we said last week, I think, that we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's the outworking of our nature. And that's why Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, and you were by nature, good, that's a good one too, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It wasn't by your actions that you were children of wrath. It was by your nature. And no one, apart from God, can change their nature. Okay. It's abhorrent to most people. Well, it's abhorrent. Because they're good people. Yeah, that's right. That's a great way of yeah, a Christian that said, and that's abhorrent to most people because they think that they're good people, right? But again, we have to ask, by what standard are you good, right? All right. So when Adam and Eve fell, we fell with them. All humanity became dead in sin. And then thirdly, where we're going to spend most of our time, we were born totally depraved. We were born totally depraved. The end of the paragraph says, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. Wholly defiled just essentially means completely corrupted. We were corrupt through and through in all of our abilities, in every aspect and notice the phrase, of soul and body. There were people throughout history who were teaching essentially that everything that is spiritual is good and everything that is material is bad. Right? That was happening as early as the New Testament church. That's what a lot of the writers are writing against in the New Testament. Um, so this, it, without any equivocation, says we were defiled in both soul and body. We were completely corrupt through and through. In short, we came totally depraved. Let's take a look and see if that's true. Titus chapter 1, verse 15. Titus 1, 15. In this section, um, Paul, the Apostle Paul is giving Titus instructions on how to handle false teachers and rebellious individuals in the church. And in Titus 1.15, he writes to Titus, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, first, let's take a look at this idea of who are the pure. Uh, what do you think? Who, who are the pure? Believers? Talk more about that. 
Right. Amen. Amen. So we've been made clean. We have been made pure positionally in Christ. And that, to your point, as we grow in him, we actually become more practically pure as well. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, if we look at chapter 3 of Titus, this is how t- Paul thinks as well in chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. It's all grace. So we are pure. You should should be able to call yourself that. I am what is being described in verse 15 as the pure. Doesn't mean that you're sinless. You still sin, and if you deny that you have sin, John says that you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But positionally in Christ, you are pure. And to the pure, verse 15, all things are pure. So I think what's being said here, not explicitly, is that Paul is uh, answering the, the idea of Judaizing in the church, which a lot of other letters address as well. And so, there's those who are in the church and they're claiming that if you want to be Christian, you have to be what first? You got to be circumcised, but essentially you got to be Jewish. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow all the ceremonial laws and the food laws. And uh, even Peter struggled with this for a while because he, he thought also, I, I, there's, there's a voice in a vision telling him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? No way. I'm not doing that. This ostensibly is God, or at least a messenger from God, telling him, kill and eat. And Peter's like, I'll pass on that, right? Now we know that ultimately what the message to Peter is, is that Jew and Gentile are one now. But it is through the imagery of food being clean, or all foods being clean. And Jesus taught that as well. It's not about what goes in your body that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles a person, right? So that's the idea here. For us who have been made pure, all things are pure. Now, that doesn't mean that anything that I do is pure. But what it means is that all these externals, thinking about from a Jewish mindset, this is clean, this is unclean, this is clean, this is unclean. And Jesus reverses all of that by even touching a leper, which ceremonially would have made him unclean. But he's God, right? So to the pure, all things are pure. But on the other hand, To the defiled, verse 15, and unbelieving, nothing is pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. So the opposite here. The opposite of pure here is defiled, which we defined earlier as those who are corrupted. And it's tied very closely with unbelieving. Because the only reason we're pure is faith. And the reason why they continue to be defiled is unbelief. And to them... Nothing is pure. So even if somebody 
followed the perfect Daniel diet or whatever other dietary laws are in the scriptures, that doesn't make them pure. Because if they're not doing it for Christ or in Christ, then it's still, it's still dirty. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anything does not, that does not proceed from faith is sin. That's what it says in Romans. As a matter of fact, he's talking about diet in that because there's an argument in the church about whether you can eat meat sacrificed to idols. He says, yes, you can, but if you don't feel like you should, don't because then you're not doing it in faith and then it's sin, right? He's, you're violating your conscience by doing so. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, and then also in Isaiah, it talks about all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in comparison to what they should be, right? Um, nothing is pure. And here's the contrast, verse 15. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. This is for those who are unbelievers. And because they're still unbelievers, they're still defiled. Their minds and their consciences are defiled. We can think of minds and consciences in understanding and judgment. So we recognize that, that corruption that we used to have apart from Christ and still struggle with in the flesh is that we understood things completely incorrectly. And not only did we see the world incorrectly, but we also made judgments that were also incorrect. That's what we're talking about with conscience. So, I don't know, what's an example of before you were a believer, or maybe when you were a very young believer, that you were so sure it was right or wrong, but you realize now was incorrect? What's an example? Yeah, Wally. Okay, okay. He said KJV only. Okay. All right, okay. Um, I was, yes. Oh, what else? <laughs> what else you got? <laughs> yeah. Um, so before you were a Christian, or even if you were a young believer, a judgment that you made of something that was either right or wrong, but actually you realize, you look back and you say, no, that wasn't right. Yeah. So that's what you thought, is having wine for dinner is sinful. So in your case, you, you're struggling with legalism of um, you can't have any of this. And if not, you're not a Christian. You're not saved, right? Um, there's, I mean, what's another example of an incorrect judgment that you made about what was right and wrong because you were a young believer or an unbeliever? Emmy. Yes, yeah. As a young believer, she thought that um, you can't eat shrimp and scallops and all of that. Emmy's journey is funny because now that I have it right and not wrong, uh, she's just started reading from Genesis, right? Which is great. But if, you're, <laughs> if you don't have the whole story, then you're going to basically go through the journey of Israel. <laughs> and go, go through the law, and now you're under the law, and now you're feeling the weight of the law, and then Christ. So it really is beautiful that you, that you went through all of that, but like it took you through a journey through legalism and then grace, right? Uh, and then at a certain point, maybe antinomianism, and then you're corrected around Ephesians, and <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, um, that's a good point. Just uh, some other ones that are more like from the world, because the examples that have been given have been kind of like strict legalism, as opposed to lasciviousness. Um, 
I think at a certain point in my life, whether I was a believer or not, I thought, because my mom told me, that it would be wise to move in with somebody before you get married, right? You got to, I'm sorry to be crude, but this is what I was told. You got to test drive the car before you buy it. Like, this is what I was told. And it, it sounded right. It sounded right. Now we know it's wrong. But this is why. It's because I was defiled in not just my understanding, but also in my conscience. And this is the beauty, too, of what Jesus has done. Not only has he forgiven us of our sins, but he's also, through his Holy Spirit in us, has this process of transforming us into his likeness. And that's why Romans 12.2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind, that you may be able to discern uh, what is the will of God, which is conscience. Right? So what we're seeing here is that he is transforming our thinking and our judgments. So there is a sense in which a Christian, um, let me, how do I phrase this in a way that's not heretical? <laughs> we do need the scriptures. Let me say that first of all. But as a Christian grows, you should be able to recognize by your conscience what is right and wrong because you have the Holy Spirit in you helping you understand the word applied to your situation. That's the process of this transformation that we have. And that is also, by the way, the benefit of the new covenant because the law is written not only in the word of God, not only in tablets of stone external to us, but it's written right here in our hearts. Now we'll talk about why you shouldn't trust your heart in a moment. But the point is that Jesus is transforming us out of this depraved situation. That's Titus 1.15. Did I miss anything in that verse? Let me look. All right, let's take a look at Genesis 6-5. Genesis 6-5. Here in this verse, God is expressing how he sees humanity before the flood. And in Genesis 6, verse 5, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he's made man, uh, they've sinned, and now they've spread uh, throughout the world, and he sees the wickedness of them. It's great in all the earth. The wickedness is, in this particular context, talking about what they're doing. There's tons of wickedness all over the world, and the, the same is true today. We look around all over the world, and there's wickedness all over the place. We don't have to look very far. We can look at our own flesh. We see that there's wickedness being great in the earth. And furthermore, besides the wickedness, God also sees and knows everything about our hearts and minds. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is talking about man, mankind. Every intention of the thoughts. So notice there, by the way, that your thoughts have intention. There's this popular thing, kind of a meme right now, called like, intrusive thoughts you know what i'm talking about when my intrusive thoughts like strike and the the idea behind that is like there's something external to you affecting your thinking but that's not true like your thoughts are coming from your own intention you intend to think things sometimes you don't like that you think things but it's coming from you it's the intentions of your hearts and god sees them and he says that every intention of the thoughts of his heart so the thoughts come from the heart you see this word heart, by the way, and the word heart is, is, is used over a thousand times in the Bible to talk about 
not just emotion, but essentially it's the core of who we are. It's from, it's from where everything comes. Now, if you're a neuroscientist, you're gonna say, well, actually, Ed, it's the brain that, but the Bible is not a science textbook in this area. It's, it's a picture, right? The picture is the heart is right here at the center of us. It's the core. And that's for everything where it flows, including the thoughts of our hearts and the intentions of the thoughts of our heart. And it says that they were only evil continually. It was nonstop. All they were thinking and doing and feeling was evil continually. Now, this is a verse that is often used to defend the doctrine of total depravity, that sinners, that humans are sinners through and through, that they don't desire anything about. And we're, we're going to look at that more closely in Romans 3. But I was sitting in a Bible study years ago with a man who was not really convinced of that doctrine. And so he asked the question, which was fair, was that, well, what, maybe that was just talking about them before the flood. So that doesn't necessarily apply to all of humanity. Honestly, that's a fair question. So we need to answer it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. All right, done. Uh, in chapter 8, verse 21, this is after the flood. Everything and everyone has been destroyed except for what was on the ark. And in chapter 8, verse 21, when God is making a covenant with Noah that he's not going to destroy the earth like that again, or at least with a flood, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now we're talking about there's only one family left. And they also demonstrate this truth because the first thing that Noah does to celebrate God's faithfulness in saving them is get completely trashed. That's the first thing that he does. And then you see Ham, while Noah is drunk, commit his sin against Noah. So they weren't perfect. They weren't the righteous crew that survived. They also had this uh, sinful nature and were born in sin. That's a good point. I mean, I, I probably misspoke. I don't know why he did that. Um, I don't think we either of us can really know, but, but the fact is he got drunk as soon as he got off the boat. Yeah. So it's a gracious act in the sense of um, not allowing the wickedness to continue to spread at the rate that it was spreading. Uh, I could see that. It was also an act of judgment, of course, on the sinners. And yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we need to recognize that humans are not always the worst that they possibly can be. Like they're the part, one of the functions of God's law is to curb evil on the earth. So even if they're not believers, sometimes the law, like like many of our laws in America are based on the Bible, right? Um, and so that curbs some sin. Not every place is like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're there eventually again. Um, but what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, like they, they went to their house and they were like, bring him out here so we can lie with him. And then Lot was like, uh, no, I can't do that to my guests. Have my daughters instead. Like that's how bad things were in Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's not, it's, when we talk about being totally depraved, we're not the worst that we possibly can be. But what we're saying is every aspect of who we are is corrupted by sin, if that makes sense, okay? So again, Genesis 6-5, that was true about them. And Genesis 8-21 implies that it was, not even implies, it, it says explicitly that it was still true after the flood. So that didn't, he didn't reset in the sense that humans became righteous again, all right? It's standard equipment. Jeremiah 17.9. Let's look at that. Jeremiah 17.9. In the book of Jeremiah, the context is Jeremiah is both lamenting about the state of Judah, the southern kingdom, and also he is prophesying the impending judgment on Judah. And in Jeremiah 17.9, God is actually speaking. And God says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we just covered at the heart. What is the heart again? The core of the being. It's who you are. It's from, it's, it's from where everything comes. Your thoughts come from your heart. Your feelings come from your heart. Your intentions come from your heart. Your words come from your heart. Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks, right? And so... When saying that the heart is deceitful, the core of who you are is deceitful. It deceives you. It deceives the people around you, which is why it is terrible advice for anyone to tell you to what? Listen to your heart. Follow your heart. That is bad advice. Even as a Christian who has a new heart, because we still have the flesh. So we can deceive ourselves into thinking something is right or wrong simply because of how it feels, right? I remember, um, again, years ago, uh, there were a couple of these sisters pleading with their sister, you got to stop having your boyfriend in your room with the door closed. And her reason for why she was doing it is, I don't feel convicted about it. And so it's like, you can't, you can't follow your feelings, right? You have to follow the word of God. But it is much worse for an unbeliever. The, their heart is not new. It's a heart of stone. And it is completely deceitful. And it's deceitful above all things. There's nothing more deceitful in the world than the human heart. It's desperately sick as well. It's desperately sick. By the way, this is talking about God's people. This is talking about Judah. This isn't talking about the nations. Even the hearts that Judah had were deceitful deceitful above all things. This idea of being desperately sick is that this corruption of the heart that's through and through is incurable. Which is, by the way, God doesn't heal our hearts. What does he do with our hearts? He gives us a transplant, right? He takes out the heart of stone and gives us instead a heart of flesh because that heart of stone is completely and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The complexities and the corruption of the human heart is, is beyond comprehension for humanity. So that's the nature of the heart that we had, the heart that we were born with. Again, like a, a child doesn't just start having that heart at some point. That's the heart that they're born with, right? 
Let's look at Romans 3, verses 10 through 19. Romans 3, 10 through 19. So here, Paul is making the case that everyone is a sinner. Every single person is a sinner. This is through Romans 1 through 3. He's talking about how Gentiles are sinners. They don't have the law, but the, the fact that they sometimes obey the law is evidence that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So in, in disobeying, in, um, rather, in obeying God sometimes, they're recognizing that there is right and wrong, and they are choosing wrong, and they're thereby disobeying God. And then it talks about Jews who also have the law. They're also sinners, right? Um, what advantage has the Jew? And so then we get to Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So this is the case he's making. Before he brings in the good news, he's laying out very clearly the bad news. And the bad news is everybody is corrupt. Everybody. Not just the political party you don't like. Everybody is corrupt, right? As it is written, and he starts to quote, not any particular passage, but kind of a conglomeration of Psalms and Isaiah. He lays it out this way. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now we might be tempted to think, man, that describes so many people that I know. But that described you too, if you're a Christian, before you were in Christ. And in some ways, in your flesh, you're still like this, but you're not completely like this anymore, thanks be to God. So let's go back to the top of it in verse 10. None is righteous. Christian. I just want to make a point is that I have, uh, when I've witnessed to people, and they actually bring this up, is there is no one who seeks God. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, what about the Mormons? What about the Buddhists? What about the Hindus? What about so? What about, what about? And I said, well, they're not seeking the one true God. Right. They're seeking their own God. Yeah, right. Um, before I repeat that, we're gonna, I'm, I'll get to that in just a moment. So, no, that's good. That's good. So none is righteous. No one has a right. And essentially, righteous means that you are right standing and you're right standing with God. And it says that no one is righteous because no one has obeyed him, right? No one has met the requirements to be in a right standing with God. Now, you might say, isn't Job described as righteous? Isn't Joseph described as righteous? Yes, that's true. But you have to understand that in the context of what is being described. To say that Joseph was a righteous man is like, he's a good guy. That's essentially what it's saying. We recognize that there are even unbelievers that are like, man, that's a good guy. Like, I wish he knew my Lord because he's just, he's such a good guy. But we're basing that righteousness on our own standards, right? If you're basing it against God's standard of righteousness, how many people apart from Christ are righteous? Zero. Zero. That's what this says. None is righteous. And to emphasize that in case you missed it, he says, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one has a right understanding of the world. Remember in Romans 1, he says they, people look at creation and they reject God rather than say, wow, what a mighty God created this, right? No one seeks for God. And this is what Christian was saying when he's talking to people out on the streets. What about Muslims, Mormons, uh, Jews, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc.? This doesn't mean that no one is seeking for the concept of God, because it's true, Romans 1, everyone was exchanging God for other gods, essentially. But what this is, is being said here is no one seeks for the true God. Nobody, apart from Christ, looks for the God of the Bible. And it's rebellion. Romans 1 describes it that they exchange the truth about God for a lie because of their sin. They, they recognize in their hearts, the true God doesn't agree with me on morality. So I'm going to make a God for myself instead. That's my paraphrase of Romans 1. Okay? So no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. If there is a path of righteousness, every single one of us has turned aside, away from it to go against our own, go with our own standard of righteousness. Together they've become worthless. Now this doesn't mean that, uh, that we've lost all value as image bearers. Um, every human is still an image bearer of God. And Genesis gives that as a reason for why murder is wrong because all humans are in the image of God. So humans still have inherent value, but this is talking about worthless mor morally speaking. You, you, you'll see in Deuteronomy 13.13, I think, and Judges talking about worthless fellows. You never want to be described as a worthless fellow in the Bible, all right? So they become morally corrupt, sinful, worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good. Now, this is interesting. It's like, how could you say that? You know, David did some good, right? Did David kill Goliath? Um, Job didn't reject God, even in all of his suffering. So how can the Bible say that no one does good when there are clearly good things that we're supposed to emulate from the Old Testament? How can this say that no one does good when we do see some people in the Old Testament? Yeah, it's the wrong motivation. It's for me. Sure, sure. Yeah, Wally and then Daniel and then Cedric. No. He's talking about, because he's talking about the crux of it is right with God. Mm -hmm. God standing in front of a holy God. Mm -hmm. So perhaps he can, he can say that in light of that. Mm -hmm. not talking about doing good to others. Like, does God see you holy as he is holy? And the answer is no. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, right. No one... Um, it's a standard of, it's God's standard of goodness, not our standard of goodness, Daniel. Same thing, same thing. Yeah, I mean, again, Isaiah says all of our righteous deeds, so he is acknowledging they are righteous deeds, but they are as filthy rags because they are affected by our corruption. Even as a Christian, I still experience this reality today. Like to, today, I was uh, at a fast food restaurant and somebody asked me if I could buy him a meal. I bought him a meal. That was a good thing to do. But there were certain sinful things going on in my heart at the same time. Who's watching? I wonder what they're thinking. I just got to get this guy off my back. Like these are, it's like not perfect. It's not good. The only reason they're good is because they're purified and sanctified by God. But in and of themselves, in, in, in myself, these aren't good things that we're doing. That's why the Bible can say, how many people do good? None. None. Not even one. Now, by the way, I, we need to balance this, 
Because I think even some Christians wrongly think, I can do no good. I'm not good. I'm still a worm and I'm a wretch. The same man who wrote Romans 3 also wrote in Romans, I am convinced that you are full of goodness. So it's, it's a balance. It, both are true. Okay, you don't have to throw one out for the other. Okay, not even one. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. What a, what a picture. Imagine a corpse in a grave and the grave is open. It's putrid. It's disgusting. That's what our throats are like in terms of if we were to open them, it's just garbage coming out before Christ. They use their tongues to deceive. Why did God create our tongues, ultimately speaking? To praise him, to glorify him, to speak truth and love. And yet we take those tongues and instead we use them to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Asps is just snakes, but it's as if we have snake venom in our words. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Instead of passing on, we receive so many blessings from God. Instead of passing that along, we instead curse others. We wish ill on them. We feel bitterness toward them. I just realized the time, so I'm going to move a little faster here. Their feet are swift to shed blood. This is not to say that you and I, before Christ, were looking around to kill people, but we did that in our hearts. We murdered people. And honestly, if it weren't illegal, and if it were culturally acceptable to kill someone who challenges you or cuts you off on the road, I bet you there'd be a lot more homicides. I, I, I don't doubt that. Because there are times we get so angry with people that we would kill them. Cain did it to his own brother out of jealousy, right? This is us. This is who we were. In their paths and ruin, in their paths are ruin and misery. So it's not just that we want to go shed blood, we destroy. We did. We did destroy. And the way of peace they have not known. Uh, I think that's probably talking about peace with others. Others think that's talking about the way of peace to God, but they're inseparable. We don't have peace with others because we don't have peace with God. Uh, we don't have inner peace because we don't have peace with God. And then here's the crux. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If we had a constant fear of God, we wouldn't sin. But we struggle with continuing to fear God as we should. And before Christ saved us, we didn't fear God at all, at least not in any meaningful way. And in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So whether it's the law that's written on tablets of stone for Israel or the law that's written on the hearts of the Gentiles, whatever it says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. In the court of law, if we're asked what our plea is and why God should let us into heaven apart from Christ, we got nothing to say because we did nothing good. We, we didn't seek him, so our mouths are stopped and therefore the whole world is held accountable to God. So this is, this is the, the extent of how corrupt that we were and how corrupt humans are in Christ. Now, all of this is kind of a bummer on its own. It's kind of a bummer on its own, right? But the, the glory of it is that it just, it acts as a velvet backdrop to the jewel that is the gospel. It just, it just helps us to see how beautiful what God did for us really is. Because it was in this state, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So if you're here tonight and, and you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then this is still your state. You, you are still totally depraved. You're still dead in sin, and it's because of your descendant of Adam and Eve. But it's not just because of what they did. It's because as early as you could in your life, you rebelled against God, and you have been doing so up until this very day. But the good news is that even in that state, God gave his only son for sinners like you and me. And he says, believe in him and you will be saved. You will be forgiven every sin and you'll start to be transformed into the likeness of his son. So repent and believe of, of your sins. Brother and sister in Christ, this is what God saved you from. This is what God's grace reached out and saved you. You weren't just like a generally good guy with some issues. You were corrupt through and through. There was nothing delightful about you. And yet even in that state, Jesus died for you. Let, meditate on that. Reflect on that when you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling with despair or depression or doubt. Remember what you were saved from and meditate on this. Even when you're not feeling down like that, you should, you should constantly be rejoicing in these realities. And furthermore, you should help people to come out of this corruption. What is the means that God uses to bring someone from this to completely the opposite? What's the means? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And you have that. You can be what God uses, who God uses, to bring somebody from this into a Christ-like person who is forgiven of their sins. And even for fellow believers, even though they're not depraved anymore, and even though they have a new heart, they're still struggling with their old reality. And you can help them by speaking the truth of love to them. And we all need each other's help with that. I'm past time. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this awesome reality. It's a wonder to behold that we can talk about just how terrible we are and were and still walk away completely delighted in you and encouraged. It's all because of your grace, O oh God. You did not leave us in this state. You sent a Savior for us, and you brought us to faith in you and salvation. And we ask, Lord, that this would be fresh in our minds for the rest of this week and onward, and that this would not depart from our lips, but that we would constantly be talking about it to everyone we possibly can, out of an overflow of gratitude from a changed heart. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.